0: If you were to describe your father growing up, how would you describe him? For some of you, this might conjure up sweet memories. Maybe you were playing ball outside with him, coached your team, went to your performances, sat on his lap, he hugged and kissed you before bed, Maybe he's the first person you call when you're scared at night. For others, this might bring up some some pain and some difficulty. He was either absent or reclusive. Probably wasn't around very often because of work. Probably harsh. You can go on and on with increasingly difficult descriptors and harder memories. Maybe you experienced a mix of the two. But I think most of us do. Maybe you, you never even knew him. And you sort of wish you had a memory, whether it was good or bad, because at least that meant you knew him. Rather than third-person stories hearing from somebody else about him. Whether they were good or bad. Wherever you fall on this spectrum, Jesus in John 8 claims that all of you have a father. Jesus explains the difference between relying on your earthly father, potentially if he was good. And this is Abraham for the Jews. But they guarantee your righteous standing. You're like, my father was good, I'm, I'm good. And this is whom Jesus both perfectly represents and is the, the same divine essence of. because You're kind of comparing him with your heavenly father. It's it's sort of like relying on your family reputation especially if you come from a good one. Maybe even your your strong upbringing to save you. You might be saying something like this. I come from good parents and they're Christians. They're good moral well people. They brought me up to the church. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Versus understanding that salvation is not based upon heritage, which they had a hard time, but it's on perfection. Both the Jews had a difficult time wrapping their heads around this, and you might too. We cling to the earthly, if all has gone well, and sometimes we cling to the earthly even if all has not gone well. Or we strike off on our own, like, that didn't work for me, i got to find something else different. But your heavenly Father has not and will not fail you. Because he has sent his son Jesus to represent you and then bring you to him, the Father. If you remember last week, Jesus is actually still at the Feast of Booths in this. He's still in the temple. He's still in the Feast of Booths. He's still fulfilling the Feast of Booths. If you remember beginning, John's gospel is not necessarily chronological. It's a little more thematic. So he might be going back a little bit in time. But we're not sure. And it's right after he confronts the Jews after the episode with the adulterous woman. You could say, especially after the last episode, he's he's kind of in attack mode. He gets, little, he gets a little testy because he's he's being tested. We're gonna see this in three points. First is witness of God the Father, verses 12 through 30. You might be asking, how can Jesus say the things he does? The Jews ask that. How can he say this? Because he speaks from the Father as the Son. As the Father speaks, so does the Son speak. Second is witness of Father Abraham, verses 31 to 41. The Jews cannot rely on their heritage for salvation. As much as we want to, or as much as you don't want to, you cannot rely on it either. Because even Abraham points to Christ. He uses their arguments against them. And lastly is, who is your father? Verses 42 to 59. It brings up the questions. Will you rely on your reputation, your family, your heritage, or to say, I don't want any of that stuff. I don't want anything to do with this stuff. Or are you trust in the Son of God, who brings you to the father? And I pray this becomes clear throughout. Jesus came to bring you to his father through his work. So you have the same relationship with God the Father as Jesus has with God the Father. Let's begin with point one. Witness of God the Father. Look with me at verse 12. Remember, this falls on the heels of Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees, scribes, and the adulterous woman, which doesn't go all that well, especially for them. And he continues teaching in the temple. And he says, the light has come into the darkness, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, The holiness of Yahweh and bodily flesh has broken into this world. He's planted himself in the midst of this temple, which kind of brings you to think, he wasn't there before. He's now finally in the middle of this temple, and it's on the opposite side. He he wasn't there before. And he's the lights. If you know the temple well, there already is a light in the temple. It's the menorah. It's the lamp that has the light right on. It's not actual physical electric light. As you know, it's it's a candle. Oil. It's shining on the bread in the temple. So he's like, I'm that. They they had a concept of light in the world. He's like, "That's, that's me. Lighting those around him because the bread basically represented Israel. I'm lighting this. I'm lighting you. I'm that light of the world. But the Pharisees are not having it. If you look, they say, How can you make this claim, Jesus? We know who the light is. We see it in front of us. We see it in the temple. That's the light. You're not the light. We don't need lights. We're not in dark. But notice how Jesus responds. In verse 14 is the same argument he used in John 5. Basically says the same thing. When the Father speaks, I speak. Father doesn't speak, I don't speak. I don't make anything up. We are one. We're two persons, we're the same divine essence. The Pharisees speak, therefore, from themselves. Because Jesus says, I don't speak for myself. Nothing I say is conjured up just within me. I only speak as the Father speaks. He's saying, but you, you Pharisees, you speak from yourself. You're looking for your own glory. So like, I'm going to conjure this up within me, tell you what I think, my opinion. You want to look good around people around you. You want people to look at you and comment and say, that's a really holy person. Man, they hold the law really well. They look really good compared to me. They look really good compared to everybody else around them. They're really holy. That's the glory you seek. But the Pharisees actually bring up pretty good points. Because in order to substantiate a claim, a legal claim, where they're in the temple, there's also kind of a legal area as well, especially with Mosaic law, you do need two witnesses to substantiate a claim. They look around and say, Jesus, there's only one of you. How do you make this claim? You know Moses' law. You know there's supposed to be two around you. But Jesus comes back and says, because I and the Father are one, and I speak as the Father speaks, I do have two witnesses. Father is a witness, and I'm a witness. Two persons. That's why he doesn't judge by himself. Again, from himself. He's not saying I don't judge as an I don't judge at all. He's saying I don't judge from here, I judge as the Father judges. He renders what the Father has spoken, and he does it perfectly. But you can imagine when the Pharisees hear this, they're looking around, they see just Jesus. They're like, I don't see Joseph. Joseph is your father. Joseph is your physical father. Where is he? I don't see that second person. He's not standing in front of them. <laughs> you that, like, Ironically, they miss the father in the son. They look for the physical father. But can you see God the father? Jesus already told them, you can't see God the father. They're probably wondering, if you mean to say your father speaks as you do, can you please tell us where Joseph is? Let's bring him into court. Substantiate this claim. So they miss it. Jesus says in verses 19 to 20, because the Pharisees don't know God the Father. That's the big points. This is not the fact that Pharisees have God and Jesus is God and they're kind of like trying to tussle over the true interpretation. He's saying, you don't have a father. God is not your father. They don't understand that Jesus is the Son of God, the sent one of the Father, to bear witness of the Father and come in the fullness of the Godhead to show forth his glory. And ironically, as pointed out earlier, everything happens in the treasure room. This is where all the tithes are at. In the Father's house. As Jesus calls it in John 2. So in verses 21 to 30, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in much the same way as he spoke to Nicodemus. This is John 3. Twice in these 10 verses, between 21 and 30, he tells them, you will die in your sins. He's saying, you don't believe God the Father. You don't believe me. It's not the fact that, you, that you're kind of getting it, but not really. It's like, you don't actually believe at all. If you don't see God the Father in the Son, you don't see God the Father. And Yahweh has enfleshed himself in this world, in Jesus, from the world that is to come. He's kind of bringing him forward. From, from new creation, he's bringing him in, in, in now. And This is so vital to understand what Jesus is saying here. And as you're going to hear a little later on, you can come from the greatest family line, the purest, most moral, church-tending family line, spotless record, have a giving heart, it's just a pristine reputation. And it all means nothing. Nothing. For you must be born from above. As verses 23 to 24 describe. Sounds so similar to what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. You were born of an earthly. You didn't need to be born of a heaven. You need to be born from above. So these leaders, they're so confused concerning Jesus' identity. This is verse 25, which is such a contrast, which is why I think John puts John 9 after John 8. And we'll get there next week. Because John 9, who's Jesus interacting with? A blind man who sees Jesus. And these Pharisees have their eyes wide open and they miss him. No idea. No idea verse 28, it's a a terrifying reality. Notice what it says. Then you shall know when you've lifted him up, once the Son of God is glorified, that I am Yahweh. What is that lifting up? The thing they don't expect. When I'm crucified on a cross for your sins, that's the time you know I'm the Son of God. Not when I come and take over Rome. Not when I show dominance when i'm lifted up on a throne when i'm lifted up on my throne on my cross that's when you'll know that i'm the son of god and that's terrifying that should be terrifying if you do not know jesus because you think he's being humiliated but he's actually showing his glory he is showing if you want glory you're in my place you're in the cross with me but such a consolation if you believe in Jesus, because He's representing you. And he's also alluding to Isaiah fifty-two verse thirteen, which, if you know, Isaiah fifty-three is the, is, the, is the famous servant song. Isaiah fifty-two thirteen is when the servant of Yahweh, which Isaiah understands is distinct from Yahweh, is going to be exalted and exceedingly glorified. And as Isaiah 53 expands on this, it's like he's exalted and glorified by taking on iniquity, by taking on sins. So Isaiah before the cross is describing the cross. And then John says, That's Jesus. Glorification of Jesus is exaltation accomplished via the humiliation of the cross. And they're looking for huge amounts of reputation. Big glory come from this guy who's going to take over Rome. And he's like, you got it it all wrong. And as a result of these things, (laughs) telling them you're about to die in your sins, many of them believed. Not all of them, but many of them believed. But even more don't this is not for lack of evidence this is not for lack of glory but it's because they think well I don't need you because I got my heritage I got my reputation we've already got Abraham I don't need you I don't need you Jesus I got this guy who gives me a get out of jail free card by being born that's what I got this brings us to point two Witness of Father Abraham, verses 31 to 41. And as you know, Jesus, if you bring up like, but what about Jesus, what does he usually do with it? He takes it and uses it against you. Now I'm going to actually tell you what that means. And he does this with Abraham. It's like, you think Abraham saves you? You think being born of Abraham's seed saves you? That's precisely what he does, beginning of Verse 31. Speaking to those listening to his teaching, he tells them that if they heed his word and trust in his name, they're true disciples. You will be free. I'll set you free. Sounds like pretty good news, right? Don't you want to be free? Fully and completely free? Unless you don't think you're enslaved. Unless you don't think you're in bondage to your sin. Unless you don't think, I don't need to be freed. To tell somebody you need to be freed is to, to assume you need to be freed. And they don't want to be. I bet if you were to walk up to a random person on the street and ask them, maybe you ask yourself, what does freedom mean to you? Or just ask you, what, what, describe, define Freedom you'll likely hear something similar to this. It's to be free of all rules, every constraint, so that I can make a decision for myself without any outside bias. Nobody telling me anything of what to do. No oversight, no authority, no one to consult. You decide all things for yourself. Give your own standard. But Jesus is saying, that's not actually Freedom. That's not free at all. That's, that's a tremendous burden for you to define freedom. You've got to construct your own system, but from what? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go when it inevitably crumbles right in front of you or under you? Because that's what they're dealing with here. Everyone around him, kind of unlike our kind of current cultural desire to be free of all freedom, or free of all authority, is saying, we already have an authority. Or what we think is an authority. We come from Abraham. We're free in Abraham. We have a father. Because notice who they don't say. God's our father. They go to a human. Abraham's our father. They've got lineage. Father Abraham, they think. Is their get out of hell free card. Get out of jail free card. Born into the right family, they think, voila, I got it. I'm all good. But they're thinking according to the flesh. For Abraham took Hagar, this is Genesis 16, given to him from Sarah, replaying Adam's sin to construct his own family. I want to do this my way, God. I know you gave me the promise, but I think I can get there. They're trying to take on God's own promise. And that's what the Jews are saying. That's the guy we trust. And they're like, are you sure? Do you really trust him? Not only that, but as Jesus says in verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And I want to tell you, this, is, this does not mean when you sin because you sin and I sin, doesn't mean you're not a believer. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because you're going to sin as a believer. You sin this morning, you're going to sin later, you're sin probably during the service. Happens to all Christians. But what he is saying, is that they're slaves of sin, not of Christ. Their assumption that they were born to the right family is what enslaves them. And they don't even realize it. Because Ishmael, who's the products of Abraham and Hagar, who is he called by Paul? The one that Abraham tried to bear according to the flesh. He's the son of slavery according to what they tried to do. And he, did he stay in Abraham's house? No, they were literally pushed out. They're not staying in our house. Because he was not the promised son of God. Isaac was. Born in Sarah's old age to an effectively dead womb, only an act of God could have opened her life, or opened life in her womb. So Jesus admits in verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. He's saying, I know what you're saying is true. Physically, yes. You're a seed of Abraham. If you're a Jew, you're a seed of Abraham. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Like, yeah, you've got the DNA of Abraham. You've got the DNA of good flesh and good works, all that good stuff. You got Abraham kind of flowing through your blood. But you don't trust the same God Abraham did. Therefore, you're not truly of Abraham. Physically, yes. Spiritually, no. Not at all. Because the gospel is not according to the flesh. It's according to the spirit. It's according to the promise. And ending this section in verses 39 to 41, the Jews they start doubling down. They start pressing even harder. They're pushed, they don't repent, they press harder. If Abraham were your father, Jesus said, you would do what Abraham did. What you should ask what did Abraham do? Definitely didn't seek to kill. He was certainly sinful in a multitude of ways, as you can see in the book of Genesis, doesn't hide. He gives away Sarah three times to three different pharaohs or kings. Not good, don't do that. And amongst other things, but he trusted in Yahweh. If you were Abraham's Spiritual children, you would trust in whom Abraham trusted. Jesus is saying, he trusted in me. But God is not their father, so neither is Abraham. For they are doing the works your father did. And their next question betrays their heart. Because their next question is "Is an extremely low blow. doesn't sound like it on the front end, but it's an extremely low blow. Because they call Jesus like you were born a sexual morality. They're calling him a bastard child. Mary had you out of wedlock. Therefore, you're a bastard child. And it leaves you asking, who is your father? Who is their father? Which then should cause you to ask, who is my father? Which brings us to our last point. Who is your father? We begin in verse 42. He zeroes in, Jesus doesn't the issue. The works of the Jews betrays their father. And it's certainly not Abraham. It's funny. Like I said, not once do they call God their father. Never. They pound that Abraham's our father. Almost like they just they just trust the flesh. Not the God. Abraham believed in, but Abraham. They locate their family on an earthly man who located his family in heaven. Because if God were their father, if God's your father, you would trust in Jesus who was sent from the father. It's not like you kind of choose one and say, like, nah, not really the other one. If you trust God, you trust Jesus. If you trust Jesus, you trust God. They would recognize the Father through and in Jesus, and yet they do not because they're blind. And unlike the story after this, which is physical blindness that sees Jesus, this is spiritual blindness that doesn't see Jesus. They could see, but they don't see Here's the issue. The reason they have God as their father is because they don't have God as their father, is because the devil is their father. In verse 44, you could say, as God's will is Jesus' will, as the devil's will is their will. What the devil wants to do, they do. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, successfully tempting your and my parents in the garden plunging humanity into sin and death. Though he did not physically kill them, the devil did not physically kill Adam and Eve, he spiritually did. That spiritual death is, is not what the Jews seek, they, actually seek they, they seek physical death. We need to put you to death. Stop this. He, the devil, has been a liar from the beginning, turning people away from God the Father, and now he's using them. They always accuse others who trust in Jesus of being blind when they're blinds. They can't actually see. And so Jesus flat out tells them in verse 47, if you were of God, you would hear God. And that's just it. But they do not because of their unbelief. Those of God hear God. And through your word, through his word. The very word that you have right in front of you, either on your phone or physically. That's how you hear God. That's how you know of God. I believe in this. I trust in this. But you might be wondering, but I, like, I'm, I'm unrighteous. I, I sin. I, I do all this terrible stuff. How can I possibly think he's my father if I do this always, if I do this all the time? If I feel distant from God, how can I feel this? And these feelings can kind of crop up because they tempt you to think you're not of God. So your distance, your unrighteousness that you feel makes you think, I'm not right with God. And these Pharisees didn't have this, though. Is there any repentance? Is them noticing, oh, that, okay, that's, I get it. I get what God's saying to me. Yes, I'm unrighteous, but I get what he's saying. There's no repentance whatsoever in this passage from them at all. And that's a sign that you are of God. If you repent, you're, you're recognizing, yes, I am unrighteous. Yes, I don't do the will of God. Yes, I do sin. not your distance from him and say, no, you're actually close to him. If you didn't feel that repentance, if you didn't have the desire to repent, you're not close to holiness. they like am telling you to repent. Rather than deflating you, this, this should enliven you. I do have a desire to repent. I do recognize my unrighteousness. I do recognize my unholiness. But the Pharisees, they just continue. They call Jesus a half-breed, a Samaritan, whom we just saw a few chapters ago. That's exactly who Jesus goes around. The Samaritan woman from John 4. That's who he ministers to. You can almost hear him think like, well, thank you. Yeah. They're just, they're basically throwing insults at him. Half-breed, son of a a woman who never got married. They're just insulting him. So he responds in verses 49 to 50 that he's not having a devil, but he honors the Father. By coming from the Father, speaking from the Father, by obeying the Father. You know your Ten Commandments well. This is one of the Ten Commandments: Honor your father and your mother. And he's saying, "I do that perfectly." Jesus obeyed them and obeyed them perfectly. He doesn't seek his own glory. He doesn't do it he's to build himself up. Say like, "Look at me! Look how holy I am!" He's saying, "I'm doing this to give it to you, to put this to you, to give my record to you." I'm obeying my Father. You don't obey your Father, my Father. I'm going to give you this. Death cannot catch you in Jesus. Physical death, if Jesus tarries, but spiritual death cannot. Because what is physical death for you as a Christian? That is your entrance into life. It is not your exit from life. Now you get to enjoy glory. That's what physical death does for you. It introduces you to spiritual life. Death is here, it's, it's a way of, way of saying spiritual death. And again, in verses 52 to 53, the, the Pharisees missed this. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And notice what they said who died which is kind of striking. Because who do they build up to this point? No, our father is Abraham. And then they just slam the door shut. It's like, but he died. Do you not believe in the resurrection? You can almost, you can almost like, feel this within you. Do they, do they know God's oaths throughout the Old Testament when he says... I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's like, these patriarchs, they're not dead. They're very much alive. And they're alive in Christ, but it seems that these Jews don't believe it. Our Father who died. That's what they trust in. And Jesus promises life but Abraham is dead so then who must this Jesus person be? Look at verse 55. Jesus obeys the Father has obeyed the Father and will continue to do so. He knows the Father is known by the Father and that will never end. Those in Christ and so in the Father then know the Father and Christ because Christ reveals the Father. So this is John 1 all over again. If you know me, you know the Father. If you don't know the Father, you don't know me. But they who seek who speak with Jesus do not know the Father because they do not know Christ. Lost in their sin, blind to deaf spiritually to the things of God, but they're so sure that they know. And so Jesus, you could say, colloquially, he goes for the jugular in verses 56 to 58. Because he starts using it. He's like, oh yeah? Abraham's your father? Are you sure about that? Because Abraham knew me. Didn't say new things about me. Didn't hear about me. He said, he knew me. Knew of my coming. Knew the Messiah would come from his seed. Abraham knew that. He saw it, maybe not as clearly as we see in the New Testament, but he saw it. Just because Christ was blurry doesn't mean he's not present. So when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, basically introduces himself to him, says, I'm going to be a blessing, you're going to be a blessing. 15, when he puts him through, or when the Lord goes through those broken halves, And says, I'm going to take on all the covenantal stipulations. I'm going to take on every consequence if I fail to do for you what I promised. 17, when he ratifies it with circumcision. And then 22, when he places a ram instead of killing Isaac or sacrificing Isaac. Abraham definitely knew Jesus. And the author to the epistle of Hebrews says this. Abraham believed in Christ by faith. He looked toward a day when he'd see Christ because he knew it. He knew this is true. He knew the resurrection was coming. Him offering up Isaac was him saying, I know the resurrection is true. I know if I sacrifice him, Isaac will rise again. And these Pharisees are pissed. Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. Abraham's 2,000 years dead. How can you possibly have said that Abraham saw you? What are they calling Jesus? Definitely not incarnate, and definitely not the Son of God. They're like, you're just a human. How could you have seen him? And then how does... Jesus respond. Not that I saw Abraham one day, but that Abraham saw him. Truly truly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. He's saying when Abraham spoke to Yahweh, he was speaking to me. That's a big claim. Cuz if he's wrong, he's really wrong. And if he's right, you better pay attention. That flaming pot which, which marched through the severed halves in Genesis 15, Jesus is saying, That was me. That ram caught in the thicket in Genesis 22, is like, That was me. Abraham saw me, believed in me. So, what do the Jews do? do? They bow down and worship to him. It's like, You're the Son of God. We have to worship you. We have to repent, call God our Father. Is that how they respond? They seek to kill him. What are they calling him? you have just blasphemed God. They know precisely what Jesus has come here to do, and they say, nope, we don't want it. And what's remarkable in the fullness of time, Jesus said, yeah, stone me. Yeah, put me on a cross. Let me die for your sin. He's not stoned, but he placed himself on the cross. It was not his time yet in John 8. He says, no, 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 I'm going to secretly pull away because I'm going to go at the fullness of time where I am going to be killed. Be placed on the cross for your sins, to bear your sins. You said, I don't want you as a father. He said, I'm going to die for you. To be forsaken by the only father he's ever known for the history of time back, before history, eternally, to be forsaken by his father, so that you can have a father, a father in heaven. That's, that's the incredible news of the gospel. That the one who has had the father from the beginning, eternally, says, I'm going to leave the father and then bring you to my father. The one who lived a perfect life in obedience to God the father, according to the law, was killed for you, and for your sin. But he rose as the exalted man, as he just said he was going to, to ascend back to his father. But he didn't do this alone. Didn't ascend alone. He didn't go back to his father alone. Because he brought you with him. Let me bring you back to my father. You have spurned your father in heaven, you have mocked him. You've only ever pleased your father on earth or hated your father on earth. You love the devil. But you, same one, are now granted access. Yeah, come to my father. I died in your place for your sins and I rose in your place for your righteousness. Now you get to come to my father. I earned that for you. You receive all the same benefits Christ earned and you receive the sonship that Christ enjoys. You enjoy that same sonship that he has. No difference. You get that. Eternal fellowship with the perfect father in heaven on account of the person, or the person, the son's obedience. That's yours. Let's pray. Lord, the the glorious news is that we who have spurned you are granted access to you by the perfect son's obedience to you. We get this. We get this not because we did it, because we earned it, <coughs> because we wanted it even. It's because you and your son paid for our sins, died, rose for justification to be right with you, and now you are our father. We who didn't want you, we get you. We get you forever, and Lord, what wonderful news that is! We thank you. And we praise you. All this in Your Son's name, Amen. And so.